Welcome to Community Trade Union's Education Podcast with Martin and Rob. In this episode, we look at staff pay and how you can be part of our pay campaign. We look at expectations and entitlements for early career teachers in your working life, and we bust those gift-giving myths. Yes, so hello and welcome to the Education Podcast for August. Thanks for joining us again. Please do make sure that you have subscribed. Uh, It's the best way to get this podcast straight to your device. Make sure to share it with your family and friends and colleagues and anyone who you think might enjoy it. So as Martin said, this month we are going to begin with the here and now, as usual, and teacher pay. So Martin, there's been a lot in the news recently about teacher pay. We're all very aware of the strikes that have gone on related to teacher pay. But there has been some development, hasn't there? What can you tell us about that? There has been some development, yes. The uh, government put out finally at the end of July their proposal for a 6.5% pay increase for teachers. Um, Now, to be clear, they have billed this as properly funded rather than the fully funded uplift that we were hoping for. And what that means is that 3.5% is coming from school budgets as a result of the £2.3 billion extra funding that the government have provided this year and will also be providing next year. But on top of that school funding, there is 3% additional funding, which is coming directly from the DfE. They're pulling uh, money from underspent budgets and giving that directly to schools in order to cover the teacher pay uplift. It's important to point out that when the government say that they believe schools can afford this, these estimates are based on national analysis, not school level analysis. So some schools, particularly small schools and special schools, they are still going to struggle, whereas large schools uh, in inner city areas are going to find this more easy to accommodate than those small schools. The government is aware of this, and so they have set up a hardship fund of up to £40 million to support those schools who are facing the greatest financial challenges. And whilst that is great, as a union, our position remains that we would like for all staff uplifts to be fully funded. And this is the expectation that we will have when we submit evidence in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's some degree, it makes no sense, does it, why you set up a hardship fund and don't just give schools more money? You know, if that money's there for the hardship fund, why not just fund schools properly from the outset? One of the things that uh, we'll be looking at with regards to teacher terms and conditions over the coming months will be uh, what we can do to ensure that workload is reduced in schools. So we're going to be working with the DfE as part of their work in reducing workload. Their aim is to reduce it by five hours a week. And good news, the DfE also plan to reinstate that list of administrative tasks that teachers should not be expected to do into the school teachers pay and conditions handbook. Um, It doesn't appear to be there for September 2023, uh, which is a shame, but we will be looking at ensuring that those duties form a part of future school teachers pay and conditions documents going forward. Yes, so uh, 6.5% is the pay rise for teachers. Now, that is still below, as we've discussed on this podcast several times, the rate of inflation, isn't it? Even if inflation has slowed recently. 
Yeah, inflation has slowed recently, but at its peak at the end of 2022, uh, inflation using the RPI measure was 11.6%. So 6.5% pay rise for teachers is approximately half of that. Yeah. And talking of pay then, um, what about support staff pay? Uh, Has there been any movement on support staff pay at all? At the time of recording, there had been no formal agreement from the NJC unions, but the proposal is for support staff to receive a £1,925 uplift to all spinal column points. Uh, so this is around about 9.5% for those at the bottom of the pay scale on spinal column point two, um, rising to somewhere around about 3.8% for those at the top of the spinal column point scale. So it's obviously a better deal for those at the lowest end of the pay scale, um, but it is still, as we've mentioned with teacher pay, well below the cost of living, which is, like I said, 11.6% in 2022 and looking like it's going to be around 9% in 2023. Some employers, particularly Academy Trust employers, have begun paying this £1,925 uplift as a gesture of goodwill. We have been saying to them that this does risk undermining the argument. However, it is very welcome to many staff in their pay packets. So what can our members do then, uh, community members? What, what can they do to get involved with the discussions on, on pay, whether they're teachers or support staff? Well, the first thing they can do is keep an eye on their emails because that's the best way we can use to let people know about what is happening. For example, we recently emailed teacher and support staff members about pay and staffing in their schools, and we've received around 500 responses, and you'll be able to read those responses in the next edition of Your Voice magazine. Our teacher poll uh, was responded by almost 450 teachers, with 90% of those voting in favour of accepting the teacher pay offer. So if you want to be a part of the decision-making apparatus here at Community Union, please do keep an eye on your emails because that is where we will ask you. That is where we will send you links to the surveys and the polls. And of course, you can join our campaigns. We have a pay campaign at the moment. Some of the things that you can do are on our website pay campaign webpage. For example, you could write directly to the Secretary of State, Gillian Keegan. You could write to your MP and let them know that support staff pay is not good enough. We've got some new letters that are going to be going on our website in the coming weeks. So even if you've already sent a letter before, please feel free to do it again and let us know when you've sent a letter in and let us know when you receive any reply. You could also write to your local councillor. Lots of local councillors are worried for their positions at the moment. There have been lots of upsets in local council elections. But local councillors can influence national discussions too. You might also want to arrange a meeting with your local MP. So there are lots of things that you can do, but look out, check out on your emails because we'll let you know what we're doing and you can get involved too. Yeah, and that's really important for all of our members to get involved um, as much as possible. We are a democratic organisation. We represent you. We can only do that effectively if we know what our our members wants and needs are. Uh, So please do get involved. And the way you can get in touch with us, as always, is educationpolicy at community-tu.org. Right, so moving on to this month's Your Working Life, where we are going to look at early career teachers and the early career framework. 
So most people, I'm sure, who are in education or in teaching in schools and so on will be aware that the early career framework and early career teachers and th those um, those phrases and acronyms have replaced newly qualified teachers. So newly qualified teachers were uh, NQTs for one year after which they had completed their training uh, and they were fully qualified teachers. And now that is a two year period and they are called early career teachers and that spans two years. What can you tell us about those changes uh, or about what the entitlements are now for early career teachers and how that may have changed? When students finish their PGCEs or when they finish their initial teacher training, they now begin a two-year course following the early career framework. And this is it's a two-year programme of training and mentor support. And schools are funded to provide this mentor support and also to provide additional time off timetable to support the new teacher as they learn how to do things, uh, develop their teaching knowledge, skills and working habits. So anybody that has just finished their initial teacher training and is ready to start their early career teacher two years has got a two year programme of training with support from a dedicated mentor. They get 20% PPA time in their first year of teaching, 15% PPA time in their second year of teaching and 10% PPA, the same as other qualified teachers from year three onwards. They get time off timetable for induction activities, including ECF based training and mentor sessions. They get regular progress reviews and there are two formal assessments against the teacher standards. It's worth pointing out that schools might offer extra training and support in addition to the early career framework based training, but they cannot do it instead of early career framework based training. So the ECF based training has to take place over those two years. Now, when I was training to be a teacher and possibly it was the same for you, I ended up with this huge folder um, oh, actually, mine wasn't that huge, actually. Lots of other people's were really huge, though. Uh, of evidence of how you met the teaching standards. Is that still something that um, ECTs need to do? There is still a need to gather some evidence, but you do not need to collect huge folders. Obviously, you can be asked to provide evidence to show that you have met the various teacher standards as part of your formal assessments. But this should only consist of existing documents such as lesson plans or feedback forms from observations. There's no need for anybody to create anything new for them to meet a formal assessment. The assignments that you're required to do as part of the early career framework can also show how you meet the teacher standards, but you don't have to use your ECF based training in this way. However, if it's something that you've done that you can use to prove that you've met those standards, why would you do it again? So there's no need to create any additional evidence. Everything that you need should be available as part of the work that you're doing, either as a teacher or through the work that you are doing for the early career framework. Okay, so is this, a, is this like a pass-fail situation? Sort of how does the early career framework uh, work? And I'm aware, obviously, um, that again, when I was a teacher, if you didn't pass your NQT year, that was pretty much it. So what's the situation now? Well, it's, it's not dissimilar. You must still pass statutory induction at the end of year one if you want to work in any maintained school. If you want that QTS qualification, you must still pass statutory induction. But you can't actually fail your ECF based training. It's 
an ongoing part of training. So ECF-based training is a professional development programme. It's not actually a system of assessment. So therefore, you can't pass or fail any part of it. But you should engage with the training as fully as possible um, so that you can learn from it, so that you can develop into the teacher that you want to be and that your employer wants you to be. But failing to complete it would not automatically mean you failed your induction. But as we say, you must pass induction and you must meet the teacher standards in order to do that. So should we be considering the statutory induction separately from the early career framework? You are an early career teacher for both, but the framework is a framework of assistance and learning and mentor scheme and guidance, whereas the statutory induction is something you must pass and you must still pass that at the end of your first year. Yes. If you go onto the Department for Education's website about early career teachers, they very clearly have a separate section which is all about induction. Induction is assessed using the teacher standards and the decision about whether your performance against those standards is satisfactory will take account of your development and progress against the uh, assignments that you've been doing in the early career framework, but you are assessed solely against the teacher standards and against what what can reasonably expe be expected of you as an early career teacher, knowing that you are obviously not yet the finished article, you're not an experienced teacher, you are still very new. Um, but by the end of that first year, you should be able to show that you can achieve those teacher standards and effectively consolidate your initial teacher training and demonstrate your ability to meet those teacher standards consistently in your practice. So does a new teacher receive qualified teacher status after their first year before they have finished the early career framework? Yes, the early career framework, as we've just discussed, is a development programme. So you, you receive QTS at the end of your initial teacher training and then you pass induction. And then that is when uh, you are able to be a fully qualified teacher and go to work in any maintained school. It's important to note that you do still only have one chance to complete statutory induction. And an ECT who has completed induction and um, is judged to have failed to meet those teacher standards, uh, is not permitted to repeat their induction year, although you can appeal against that decision. And um, although that doesn't mean that you lose QTS, you can no longer be employed lawfully as a teacher in uh, a maintained school, and you really shouldn't be employed in any post where you would carry out specified work. Your name will be listed on the list of persons held by uh, the teacher regulation agency who have failed to satisfactory complete induction. All of that is really, really sad. So if you feel that you are in a position where you are at risk of not completing statutory induction, if you're not going to pass statutory induction, please do get in touch, first of all, with your line manager and with your school to find out what additional support that they can offer you, but also get in touch with those to support you as well. Yeah, and all this is actually really important, Martin, and I feel as if maybe we ought to spend a bit of time covering the ECF in a future episode. So perhaps that's something we can look at next month uh, in a little bit more detail uh, here. But one last question uh, just before we move on. Can you complete the ECF at two separate schools? So do year one and complete your statutory induction at one school 
but then move to another school and would they then carry out the second year of the framework at your second school? Yes. There is no requirement for you to remain in one place of employment for the whole of your early career. Um, you can move at the end of statutory induction. You could even move, if you really wanted to, partway through the year. The only thing that is important is that the school that you are employed by is registered and able to take you through statutory induction. Most schools can, but some schools, particularly those in special measures, for example, are not able to employ early career staff. So do watch out for that, but there are no other restrictions on you moving schools. Martin and I are not saying that that is necessarily a good idea, uh, just that it is possible should that be something that you need to look at uh, during the start of your teaching career. As with anything else, if you do want to get in touch with us on the subject of early career frameworks, early career teachers, statutory induction or anything else we've just discussed in that section, you can do, as always, on education policy at community-tu.org. So on to the final part of the podcast, which, as always, is Mythbusters. Boom. Lovely. Uh, a good job this month. So, um... It's the end of term. I want to talk about this month, Martin, if we can. Um, gifts, declaring uh -huh. gifts and that sort declaring of Declaring gifts. Yeah. Um, and, and whether you need to and where does it start and where does it end and so on and so forth. So let's try with a, uh, a, a, a myth then. A teacher must declare all of the gifts that they are given at the end of term. No, they don't. Uh, but I'll go into more detail. So let's be honest, saying thank you, handing over a card, showing simple acts of kindness, that shouldn't cause anybody any concern. On the one hand, it's a way of showing appreciation for all teachers and TAs and other support staff do. But others have commented that accepting gifts can create an ethical dilemma because gifts can be seen as a form of bribery and accepting them could put staff in a position of favouritism. So I think we need to go in a little bit of detail uh, and explain what happens in other countries, but also what happens in other industries, and then look at perhaps some examples of good practice that might apply in education. So I think the first thing that we need to consider is the intent of the gift. If it's clear that the parent is simply trying to show their appreciation, then there is absolutely nothing to worry about. There's no reason to refuse the gift. But... We do also need to consider the value of the gift. A small token, such as a mug or a box of chocolates, a bunch of flowers, that's unlikely to cause any ethical problems. However, if the parent offers an expensive gift, it might be better for the staff member to decline. And we know some members have been concerned about some sizable gifts that they have been offered in the past. Now, as I said, other professions have strict advice and guidance about gift giving and transparency is given pride of place. It's the norm in many companies and organisations that staff aren't ever permitted to accept personal gifts from clients and customers. We obviously don't want to get into a situation like that in education. But if we look at what happens in the NHS, the NHS are aiming to achieve consistency by having a national code of conflicts and interests here. And their new guidance provides sensible advice in relation to accepting gifts. And it's well worth looking at that and can help support a good judgment in education circles too. Teachers don't yet have a code of conduct 
on anything like this. There are no national guidelines. So you do need to check if there are any school policies or trust policies that might apply to you. For example, is there any financial limit to the gift that you are being offered? In many US states, for example, teachers are not permitted to accept gifts of more than $50. There's no such law in the UK, but to avoid confusion, miscommunication and embarrassment, some schools now have a gift giving policy. For example, if a gift is received from a student or the parents of a student and the value is £20 or over, it might be a good idea to keep a list of these gifts. If a gift is received from a group of students and the value of the gift is £50 or more, then again, it might be a good idea to write down the names of all those who have contributed to that uh, gift in the Register of Gifts and Hospitalities. And indeed, unions, not education unions, but unions have recommended that there might be a maximum limit on gifts that needs to be set. And of course, this is good for teachers, but it's also good for parents, many of whom feel that they have to contribute if there is a, uh, a parent whip round or something. And some parents are more able to contribute to gifts than others. I remember being a teacher and I remember that some of the most thoughtful gifts were those which were the most personal that didn't have a huge monetary value, but showed that the child really, really cared. And my favourite gift that I received was a keg of beer from a student whose dad owned a brewery. But you have to be careful with gifts of alcohol too. You do. This was a sixth former. Uh, well, year 13 leaving. So there were 18, but you're, you're right. I don't know what you're going to say. So carry on. Yeah, it, it is important to point out that it's illegal for under 18s to be in possession of alcohol. So if a parent was to send their eight-year-old into school with a bottle of wine, technically that's breaking the law. And it's probably pretty dangerous as well to trust an eight-year-old with a glass bottle. Um, also, it's worth pointing out that not all teachers drink. And so therefore, you can't assume that a gift of a bottle of wine will be universally appreciated. If you are in receipt of alcohol as a gift, there's no reason that you cannot accept it as a gift subject to the things that we've discussed before. But many schools have a zero alcohol policy. So if you are receiving it, it's probably a good idea once you've had it handed over at a convenient time during the day to lock it somewhere securely, maybe the staff room or maybe in a car boot so that it's out of the way and so that you're not going to get into trouble for having alcohol on the school premises. Interestingly, it is illegal in Russia to give a teacher alcohol as a gift at all. Of all the places, you'd never have expected that one, would you? <laughs> Bottles of vodka being handed over would, would seem uh, the norm. I'd have with, you would I expect mean, that. Joke, jokes aside, do you know, uh, Martin, I completely agree with you and, you and you're right. And I think it is important people are careful, even with what you've just said about uh, locking it securely away. It's probably a good idea that you don't wander out to the car park with a student, open your boot and put something into the boot that the student's just given you. Be, a, be aware of how things might look about uh, about optics, and about making sure just protect yourself, I think is ultimately what we're saying. Ultimately, you are the professional and you need to behave professionally at all times. Having said all of that, I think that there is a real danger that we could go too far with this. The vast majority of parents, the vast majority of pupils will simply be wanting to express their appreciation for uh, a year of hard work and uh, the, the show some love to the teacher that has uh, been with them for that 
12 month period and there is absolutely nothing wrong with this what we're trying to explain here really is where it goes a little bit further and perhaps where that giving of a gift makes a parent feel that they have an entitlement to prioritization with you maybe they expect you to uh, have meetings with them. Maybe they expect you to tutor their child on a one-on-one -on -one session. Maybe they expect you to show their child some form of favoritism. So it's important that you're not um, private about these. If you've received a gift in the school, then 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 great. Don't make it a secret, um, but also behave professionally at all times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we don't want to. Do we? We're not the point of this section of the podcast isn't to 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 uh, encourage people to hand gifts back. I've had, as you have, Martin, some fantastic gifts, particularly from those students who are then leaving, you know, at sixth formers, year 11s at the end of their time at the school. Um, I've got one on my desk, in fact, I won't go into any more detail, but I've got one in front of me now on the desk here. Uh, and and uh, they're really touching and, and that's important and that's really nice. And it's one of the things that, that uh, makes teaching so rewarding. So it isn't that, as Martin said, it's just about uh, protecting yourself, really, and making sure that uh, you can never be accused of favouritism for some reason. So I think, Martin, actually, you've done a fantastic job. And I will happily say that that myth is busted. <laughs> So all that remains is for us to remind you all about how you can get in touch with us, how you can find more information on some of the things we've been talking about today. So as I've said throughout the podcast, if you want to get in touch directly with Martin and I, you can do so on the email address educationpolicy at community-tu.org. You can follow us on social media for news, shared content and resources. We're on Facebook, Twitter and on Instagram. Or for help and advice, you can visit our website. That's www.community-tu.org and check out our FAQs, Advice Centre and Information Sheets. Yeah, those FAQs, the Advice Centre and the Information Sheets really are a fantastic resource and a great place to go for advice. If you need further help and support, however, on casework, for example, then please do call the Service Centre on 0800 389 6332. Don't forget, as Rob has said, to like and subscribe and tell everybody to join us on the Education Podcast. And we will see you next month. <laughs> <laughs>